Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, my guest today is Chris Gallagher. He's a vice chancellor for global learning opportunities and professor of English at Northeastern University in Boston. Chris has taught writing at every level of the college curriculum at Northeastern and elsewhere. His most recent book and the subject of our conversation today is College Made Whole, Integrative Learning for a Divided World, available from the Johns Hopkins University Press. Chris Gallagher, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks, Al. I'm glad to be with you today. Well, as soon as I saw the blurb for this book, I knew I wanted to talk to you about it uh, because uh, integration is, um, (laughs) or the lack of it, is always present in the modern um, university. Mm. This is um, one of our occasional conversations in an ongoing series, uh, which I've titled Higher Ed Guide for the Perplexed. Uh, and we do it even though that most of the concern of the podcast is about history. We do it because I've realized that uh, there is no more closed black box, even for highly educated people, people who've been to lots of colleges, than how universities actually work or how higher education works. Uh, and I finally was, this was confirmed to me uh, a couple of years ago when I had already was doing these conversations, uh, when a guy who is uh, leads a... Um, charter school management company, um, has already done very well in a very different uh, part of, um, of work, uh, is educated, highly educated himself, uh, been to lots of great places, has been very successful in raising in STEM education for underserved minorities, uh, in a way that probably lots of people would cynically have dismissed. He said to me, so what's the overall approach to character education of XYZ University? He was referring to a Research One University. And I didn't know what to say to him. I didn't know how such a smart guy could be so naive as to think that XYZ University had an overall approach to any one question, um, let alone a a specific thing such as character education. Um, and so when I saw this book is about integration, I realized this was um, this is something to explain to people about how disintegrated the university can actually be in its current configuration. Uh, but you start in a different place. You start with the unbundlers. Um, let's talk about the unbundlers. Uh, who are they uh, and what do they want? Sure. Thanks. So. Unbundlers, that's a name that I give to an assortment of folks, policy wonks, educational journalists, so-called entrepreneurs, uh, and others who, as far as I know, don't have a secret handshake, but who share the (laughs) conviction that we need to break down higher ed into its constituent parts. So break down institutions into discrete products and services, curriculum into you know, separate content packages, learning into atomized bits of knowledge and skills, faculty work into sequences of tasks that can be performed by machines and by armies of paraprofessionals. And so these are folks who are relentlessly critiquing what they call traditional or hybrid institutions of higher education as bloated, self-satisfied, 
inefficient. Um, and they want to break up what they call the monopoly on higher education that these institutions hold. And they want to open up a deregulated marketplace for you know, unbundled services, products that'll be offered by a range of nonprofit and for-profit providers, mm-hmm. um, all subsidized, by the way, by federal financial aid dollars. So those of us who do think that uh, modern higher education can often be, uh, was it complacent, self-satisfied, um, mm-hmm. are apt to regard them at first with some favor. Um, I did for about five minutes until I started questioning their premises um, and we'll get to some of their uh, the the strange connection of some of those premises. But what would they, be their premise, for example, for teaching the unbundled? So they think about yeah, sure. So they think about teaching in terms largely of content um, is providing information over the internet largely. So they think about um, breaking up courses, for example, or bunches of courses that we call curricula into um, tiny bits, into modules, and then loading them up and sending them out over the network. Um, there is, I agree actually, that there is some appeal to some of the unbundlers' ideas, and I think we should take seriously the challenges that they pose to us having to do with um, you know, why shouldn't learners be able to pick and choose and mix and match experiences? What's so special about a three-credit course or a 15-week semester or a four-year um, degree, right? So I think they're posing some pretty fundamental and important questions to us. The problem comes in when they start um, working from assumptions that aren't uh, helpful or accurate, like when they think about teaching and learning in terms of simply transmitting information from one place to another, from one head to another, rather than thinking about what we really need to be thinking about in education always, and that's relationships. Yeah. Well, anyone who's listened to this podcast for any length of time um, knows that I was immediately, uh, that's exactly when um, I became suspicious, when education was basically the uh, information content being passed on. Um, rather than learning a way of life and a way of seeing and a way of thinking. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Which is what education is supposed to be at its heart. Now, the unbundlers would immediately say, well, how, uh, what kind of job is higher ed doing at that? And I would mm-hmm. immediately have to concede that point. But we're going to get to that in just a second. Um, it, it, when I was reading your book, I happened to see Weird Science again for the first time in maybe 30 years. Uh, hmm. And there's a fantastic sight gag at this sort of Caltech analog where uh, as this 16-year-old genius is going to math class, uh, gradually more and more and more students are putting tape recorders on their lecture hall desks uh, rather than actually go and attend the lecture. And finally, the last time he goes, everyone's got a tape recorder. Many of them are boom boxes. Look it up. um, on Just balanced on top of their desk. And at the front is a reel-to-reel recorder giving the professor's lecture. He's bothered. He hasn't. He no longer bothers to show up either. Perfect. That is exactly the sort of <laughs> lecture. It's, I mean, it's like I was. I, that might have happened actually, probably somewhere um, at some point. But that is exactly what the unbundlers are in a way. They're saying, well, lectures are like that, and so why not just break them up and put them online? Um, it's just it, lectures are right now a very bad way of of providing information yeah so if that's all higher education is 
then the unbundlers are right, and that's that's the direction we should go. And I actually have quite a long discussion of lectures yeah, in I my do. book. Um, and I'm certainly granting the point that lectures traditionally understood, um, and especially if they're the only things that we're doing in our classrooms, are uh, extremely limited. And again, might as well think about you know finding some other means of, of transmitting information. On the other hand, I think many of us who are academics have been brought into this world because we were turned on by something that somebody was saying in a room one time. Mm. When we were with other people and they were able to capture us in a way that was exciting and interesting. And so I don't, you know, lectures can never be the only thing that we do. But I also think that performers, people who use the classroom, the space, their bodies, their interactions with people in the room to elicit responses and engagement and can do, you know, really rich Q&A and can bring in, you know, in some ways, pretty modest cues in the middle of a conversation or in the middle of even a lecture or a mini lecture to, to gain engagement, there is a place for lectures. I don't want to be out here saying lectures are the only thing, certainly, but no. well, let's think about what presence means and what it means to be in a room with other people. Um, if you're at the front of the room just spewing information, absolutely put the recorder there, better yet, put it on the internet. But mm -hmm. there's far more to that engagement typically than that. Yeah. The, um, we, we've talked about it back in a previous episode. We'll link to it, uh, How College Works, um, with Dan Chambliss, a sociologist at Hamilton College. Mm -hmm. the, um, the benefit that a very good lecture can have on first-year students, unfortunately, and we'll get to this. This is one of the ways I think that we've dropped the ball. Oftentimes, the best lecturers are sort of excused from lecturing uh, because they don't mm -hmm. want to do it. They want to teach an advanced course, and when we, uh, it, it's rather like you know having the Phillies having Bryce Howard decide to you know, well, eh, I don't think I really want to hit. Uh, maybe I'll just work on my you know, I, I want to be a pitcher. Mm -hmm. um, and we should actually be, you know, putting them for, forward in the lineup. Uh, there's a, there's also an assumption. Many of the unbundlers uh, were certainly most vocal during the craze for MOOCs. Um, yes. A lot of people now are feeling very comfortable. The MOOC has disappeared. I'm not so comfortable. It will be back um, in, mm -hmm. in some form. The technology is going to, as it tweaks and gets a little bit better, um, the MOOC moment will return. But there's a certain the the unbundlers have a certain set of premises related to technology. What are some of those? Well, what they really has have is a habit of overhyping new technologies and innovations sure. that they think will once and for all rid us of you know the human labor problem at the center of education. And so mm -hmm. they're looking for the perfect technological solution that will replace those pesky professors. Um, and so instead of thinking through how technologies can enhance and improve human relationships and interactions, they search for ways to replace, replace or at a minimum, um, you know, to minimize those interactions. So they jumped on MOOCs and they thought, well, this is one way to kind of liberate the, the masses and bring education to the world. Um, and then when it turned out that, you know, the clock turned from 2012 to 2013 and the year of the MOOCs was over and people started talking about other things. They got very excited about coding boot camps mm -hmm. um, and these short, shorter engaged courses um, of study that would give people very narrow um, 
certifications and various kinds of activities. Um, neither one of these, in my view, is a bad thing. I don't. MOOCs didn't go away, and I don't think they're going to go away. I think I think I agree with you that they will transform, but we'll figure out where they fit within and educate uh, a, a learner's experience, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, there may be what we learned about MOOCs really quickly was that, but perhaps not quickly enough before they got out there and overhyped them, was that the people who were completing MOOCs, and that was a very low percentage of people, um, were by and large educated first world you know, folks who already had degrees in many cases, but were looking for a certain kind of experience and were able to self-monitor and self-regulate. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, we may be able to, to devise technologies that bring more people into that um, engagement. And, you know, we can develop new ways for them to interact with each other and scaffold the experience. But it's never going to replace that sort of human engagement um, piece. And then coding boot camps have a role as well um, for folks who are looking for that particular set of skills, but it doesn't take the place of higher education writ large. It can be a piece of a learner's ongoing trajectory. And I think what the unbundlers often miss is that kind of holistic picture of who is the learner, what is their experience over time, what kind of um, educational experience uh, will suit them both to, you know, live fulfilled lives and to make a living there's um part related to that this technology uh basically means that you don't have to think about place Mm. and um that to my mind is always very well that's just wrong um place human place is extraordinarily important to humans we talked back in april with dan guerin the author of truth spots about the way that places help people believe um, and college places actually help people believe, and arguably some college places make help people believe better than others. Uh, it might not be fair, uh, but it, there are lots of reasons why that's the case, and uh, they're probably very, very deep. I'm sure that the, the uh, neuroecologists uh, and uh, evolutionary biologists could explain something to us about that, but place is important. Yeah, place is important. I think place in some ways is doubly important in a digital age. We yeah. need to think about, you know, we need to think about the experience of people, the digital experience that people are having in their place. We tend to think about the digital and the material as opposed to each other. But in fact, somebody is sitting that they're interacting with a computer. That computer is equipped or not equipped to, um, to accommodate who they are as a learner. Um, there are children in the room or there aren't. There's food available to them or there isn't. Um, We really need to be thinking about what is the experience of that learner in that place. And then how is that place connected to other places? How Mm -hmm. does the digital experience help them live their lives in different ways, whether that's at work or in their personal relationships um, or out in the public sphere? Um, And so I think place is more important than ever before. Where I get excited about – sort of mobile technologies is the idea that we can reach learners where they are. That suggests to me that place is more important than ever, not that it's not important anymore. Right. Um, and, and and many of those uses are, are maybe the unbundlers would dismiss them as a further hybridization, but they're very exciting to me. I, I think Virginia Tech mm-hmm. 
five, even 10 years ago, started uh, some of its introductory math courses are now done in a computer lab uh, where they're doing the plug and chug stuff. Uh, and mm -hmm. they've got an intelligent pro a program that's intelligent enough and they're only going to get better in this regard to continually uh, quiz and requiz the person. So there's incremental improvement and they can actually then review and re-review uh, where they're weak. The However, it's hybridized because there is, for every, say, 30 to 50 people, there's a TA always available, uh, as it were, teaching the class. So that you're getting the best of both worlds. And it seems to me that there are probably, it's probably beyond mathematics, or probably other courses that would benefit from that sort of uh, hybrid approach. Uh, there is technology, intelligently used. There's a person, it's in the same place. I think that's the future right there. Yeah. I think we're going to be, you know, moving in the direction of adaptive learning. And you're right, it's getting better and better. Machine learning is getting to the place where they are, as we say, serving up learning objects of increasing sophistication. Um, and, you know, gamification is a big part of education um, moving forward and, and will be and should be. Um, at the same time, I think that learners, whoever they are and at whatever stage, need that human interaction at strategic moments, right? So I think mm -hmm. we need to be, you know, mobilizing both the technologies and the human resources we have to meet learners where they are and help them think about where they're headed next, take a step back and reflect on where they are and what their goals are and how to move forward. So yeah, I think that's that's truly where we're headed. What's, um, you know, you also, let's finally, there's unbundlers have a, a certain approach um, that we call, let's call it vocationalism. Uh, you do. Um, I would link this also. I, I don't think that you do. I'll, I'll take full blame for making this link. To, I would blame it to the craze for STEM and for, also for STEAM. Um, mm -hmm. what's, what do you mean by vocationalism? I'll make the connection just a, t a tick. Yeah, well, your listeners may be interested to know that one of the problems with unbundling is that they have a bad understanding of history, <laughs> um, and in particular, the history of higher education. Um, you know what they say is that the hybrid university or the traditional university was was forged the modern university was forged about 150 years ago out of a sort of unholy alliance of the missions of research and professional education and the liberal arts and the public good and all these things get sort of mashed together and the the university tries to be everything to everyone um and they say that what we need to do moving forward is be really clear about the purpose of higher education. And the purpose of higher education is to help people get jobs and to succeed in life by the sort of traditional metrics of, of sort of American prosperity. Um, they get that wrong, by the way, because as uh, Charles Dorn shows in his really excellent book, um, The Common Good, the university had multiple missions from the very beginning, that all of the mismatch of things that we're trying to do in higher education were there from the founding of the earliest colleges uh, and, uh, you know, yes. before we were the U.S., in fact, um, and that the higher education and its institutions have been evolving and adapting um, they did to that point and they have since as well. There are whole new kinds of institutions um, that have been created that weren't in existence in the mid-19th century. Um, so, you know, they get they get the history wrong. But the the point about vocationalism is that they their 
their take basically is, look, we've got to come to grips with the fact that higher education um, is there for primarily for one thing, and that's to prepare people for jobs. Um, and we, because we try to do too many things, we're not doing a good job at that. Professors are out doing their research. Um, they aren't that interested in undergraduates. Um, we make them take, take classes that aren't helpful to them, typically liberal arts classes, right? Yep. That that don't take them, that don't teach them a very specific skill. Um, and so let's get real. This is what higher education is about. We'd be much better at it if, and much more efficient at it, and it would become a lot cheaper. We haven't talked about the, the cost of higher education yet. Um, if we made it smaller, if we made it bite-sized um, or modularized, and if we were able to kind of allow learners to choose only what they need to get the job they want. Uh -huh. um, I want my students to have jobs. I know you want your students to have jobs. Uh, that would be nice. The advancement office at Northeastern certainly wants students to have jobs. Um, everyone wants students to have jobs. So why has this become, this is, I, I think this has become even more a thing in the last 10 years, and I have a couple th uh, hypotheses about the why. Um, what's your take on that? Well, I mean, according to unbundlers, the, the modern university has lost touch with uh, essentially, you know, reality mm -hmm. and is stuck in uh, another historical moment at which we could afford as a culture, as a society to take on, um, you know, a different version of higher ed. But they also have, you know, one thing they really do get right is they say, you know, we have designed higher education largely for uh, elite students. And mm -hmm. it's become harder and harder for non-elite students from lower um, socioeconomic brackets to, to pay for college. And so that's, you know, one of the arguments that they will make. I talk a quite a bit in my book about the the danger we're in right now of losing sight of the public good of higher education and sort of trace that within um, sort of constructs of higher ed that have arisen over the past, I, I would say the first, last 40 or so years, and I've tied that to kind of neoliberalism and ideas that higher education is a private good whose cost ought to be borne by the people who are in it at the time, right? So it is a commodity on an open market. And so we should get consumers in there to purchase their goods at, at market rates instead of thinking about higher education as something that benefits all of us. And so we ought to be subsidizing it um, publicly. With the downturn in 2008, we saw a lot of states moving away from public financing of higher education, and we've not seen that funding return. Um, we're still at pre-2008 levels, even as the costs for higher education have grown more and more. What that means is that families and individuals are taking on the cost of higher education more and more. Um, and that I think has everything to do with the idea that, hey, you're the one who wants a job, you gotta pay for the credential that gets you the job. Yeah. I think it's a broader conversation about sort of the, the zeitgeist, if you will. Couple, a couple of um, responses. Um, obviously higher education is too expensive. I think it could be cheaper. Um, I think there, um, I suspect, um, 
it would make lots of people upset if we came up with some ways of making it cheaper. Um, but it could, I think it could be done. I think that um, I don't think that the uh, rise in cost of higher education, uh, 1.5 to 2.5 above the rate of inflation, um, makes a great deal of sense. Um, it's hard to figure out how that happened. Um, we should some at some point we're going to have to have a, an actual discussion, higher education, of how it did happen, um, mm -hmm. in which um, everyone gets shares equal blame. Um, I don't think it's just state legislatures. Uh, I, I notice that private schools have gotten more expensive as well. Uh, the question of vocational, the question of change in higher education, of course, is absolutely true. Uh, one of the great, uh, the reason why we still have the medieval concept of the university alive and amongst us is because it has been perhaps the most adaptable cultural institution in Western history. Mm -hmm. um, it's extraordinary that it still exists. Uh, if you think about all the other inst institutions that were founded with it that do not. Uh, even in this, in I'm in Virginia. I'm about 15-minute walk from the center of the, the lawn of the University of Virginia. Uh, if you look at the history of the educational institutions in Virginia, here we have a institution at William & Mary that was founded to be a seminary to teach young gentlemen to, be, uh, to, to pastor churches in Virginia. It quickly became a seminary-slash-liberal arts college for young gentlemen. We have the great unbundler himself, Thomas Jefferson, who wants to add uh, basically science to the curriculum, is frustrated and then decides to found his own, which will credential, credential young men to be civic leaders and scientific leaders. Um, so there, the, already that's three changes between 1690 and 1820, uh, mm -hmm. which dramatically changed the direction. And that's only two institutions, too. Uh, mm -hmm. We start throwing in military schools. We start throwing in denominational schools that proliferate between 1790 and 1810. We have many, many different varieties of institutions that are changing with different uh, targets, uh, different ideas of what credentialing means. I do think that things have slowed down a lot in the last 30 to 40 years in American higher education. Um, I think there are some reasons for that. I think there are barriers to entry. Um and so that we're much more reliant upon schools like Northeastern uh, changing themselves from within, which is, I think, culturally and sociologically speaking, always very difficult to do. Uh, it's very hard to reform from within. It's much easier to create competition, say, at Johns Hopkins that makes Harvard and Yale uh, sit up and take notice and start to change their act. That was a yeah, lot. I think that's mm. yeah. That was a lot. I, a couple of responses to that. One is that I think one of the things we're seeing, and this is really probably more in the last couple of decades, is a, an actual set of you know meaningful uh, alternatives to traditional higher education, so that institutions of higher education aren't necessarily only having to. Uh, take motivation from within. We're also seeing that, you know, these these unbundlers are making headway. Mm. Um, they are working on the Department of Education to free up financial federal aid dollars um, for the kinds of programs that traditionally we've not seen um, federal monies used for. So, you know, these shorter term programs, these uh, partnerships between higher educational institutions and employers, um, 
we're starting to funnel financial aid dollars into these opportunities. This wasn't the case before. And so I think for an institution like Northeastern, you know, our drive to innovate really has to do partly with, yes, our internal sense of who do we want to be and how do we want to serve our learners, but also we're looking at the landscape, the, the social and cultural landscape more broadly and recognizing how quickly things are changing, yeah. but also the higher education landscape and seeing that there are lots of different models emerging for what a college or a university or you know, a non-institutional provider is going to look like. Um, let's make sure that we're being precisely as innovative as we can be while still making sure that we're absorbing the risk that we need to so that our students don't become um, the victims of, of kind of ill-fated innovations. And that's something that I think an institution like ours can do, should do, must do, that somebody who simply is a venture capitalist with a you know, with with some money to spend and some ability to curate some content and put it online won't necessarily have. And that's part of the value proposition of institutions moving forward is that we have the expertise, the disciplinary expertise. We have the learning infrastructure um, and we have the mission, frankly, um, to support our learners. And if we don't do that, the marketplace is going to tell us that we can't do that. Well, let's stop talking about unbundling and disintegration and start talking about integration. Um, you write, in truth, higher education as we have known it, it's not well designed to promote integrative learning and thinking either. But that's not because colleges and universities are too bundled. Indeed, they're hardly bundled at all. What do you mean by that? How, how, how is it that colleges and universities are hardly bundled? Yeah. So Clark Kerr has one of my favorite quotes about higher education. He said that universities are a series of individual faculty entrepreneurs held together by a common grievance <laughs> over parking. <laughs> yeah, that's the worst committee to be on. The, yeah. I mean, the parking committee. The parking committee. Uh, so, you know, institutions of higher education in the main are highly bureaucratic. They're hierarchical institutions designed to get the most output from their constituent parts with the smallest possible investment of resources. So, you know, the different parts of the organization, whether you're thinking about disciplines, academic units, programs, types of faculty, types of students, different credentialing options, these aren't well coordinated with each other. They don't mutually reinforce each other. And so that's why it's hard even to launch, you know, modest innovation in many institutions across academic units. Um, and it's extraordinary, yeah. even within academic units, uh, majors, as sure. you point out, are often in effect unbundled. Um, this has been my experience since when I was 19, uh, for, the mo that for the most part, a major has, when you're within the department, has amazingly little coherence uh, or integration within the department. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, my home field of English is a yeah. poster child for yeah. this because, you know, we've got uh, subfields that that often fail to engage with each other in any meaningful way. And so we build curriculum with, you know, a bunch of unrelated requirements, right? So, or loosely related at least. So take two Brit lit courses, take two American lit courses, a writing course, maybe a film or women's studies course. It'd be good if literature. one of the lit 
Yeah, it'd be good if one of the lit courses were pre-18th century, make one 19th, right? Yeah. Make one uh, – and don't forget, we have a methodology requirement. So at least one of those lit courses needs to fill that. And so what you get is this kind of accretion of requirements. You know, Curriculum is always a political process as well as an intellectual one. It's the product of jockeying by academics. Um that's a sort of cynical way of putting it. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, you could say that's sort of the point, right? Is that we get together and we uh, make arguments about what we value and we come out the other end with something that we hope serves students. But too often it serves the faculty m much better than it serves the students. And so we add courses to a curriculum when we add faculty um, because that's what they teach, mm -hmm. but not because that's why it makes sense for students to take it at that particular time in the curriculum on that particular rotation. And so students are, you know, really not the drivers of the way we design curriculum far too often. And when I was reading this uh, section, I was thinking, ah, oh, this is, it's about coverage. Um, yeah. You know, I, I think in episode one, we discussed the problem with coverage and that was for an individual class. The idea that you have to cover everything in American history up until 1865 or you have failed. Um, and likewise, when you're even building a small history department, a small liberal arts college, there is the sneaking suspicion that you really need to have as many, a wide variety of professors to teach everything. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no rule, I don't think, that says that we couldn't have an all Asian history department. Uh, mm -hmm. It would be kind of interesting. Uh, it would be different. It probably would be very uh, encouraging for the colleagues. And certainly students would get a really uh, deep understanding of Asian history if the entire department was devoted to it. But that's not the way we think. Uh, we we want to cover everything. Yeah, I think that's right. And we don't pay enough attention to what are the, the skills and conceptual frameworks that we're trying to teach our students, no matter what the cover, you know, what, mm -hmm. no matter what the content is that we're trying to cover. And when we start to focus on it that way, then we could deploy our expertise, our content-based expertise, in whatever way you know makes sense for us, because we've already made sure it makes sense for students. When we start with the question of what every student needs to know by our own lights by the time they graduate in terms of content knowledge only, then I think we're asking the wrong question. This plays out at the broader level of general education yeah, as go well. Go ahead with that because general education is extremely unbundled. Yeah, exactly right. And so this point I made a minute ago about curriculum being a political as much as an intellectual process, you can see really playing out across units where those folks don't already have a sense of identification with one another. And so you get this kind of, you know, jockeying by faculty. So the way it works, at least in my experience, I've been involved in a couple of different gen ed um, revisions, is that we argue for, you know, a few months over whether to adopt a core model or a distribution model or some hybrid of that. And that's basically, you know, a core model is, you know, you put the, the, the material into some core courses that tend to be interdisciplinary. Sometimes they're, they're topical, but they're basically, you know, sort of concentrated within a core or a distribution model in which you say, you know, take X number of humanities courses, science courses, math courses, and so forth. Um, so we argue about that for a while. Then we argue about what the requirements within that structure should be, and then how we're going to approve courses, usually courses, 
classes, sometimes other kinds of learning experiences within that structure, how we're going to monitor those courses or experiences and make sure they, in fact, do offer those experiences. And then are we going to come back and assess those or evaluate those um, a few years from now? What's that going to look like? How are we going to report that information so it goes on and on and at each stage and I think this is the crucial piece programmatic coherence gets sacrificed to implementational realities right so you're right. cutting deals you're making compromises and in the end everybody gets a little bit of what they want except perhaps the student and, <laughs> and here is what they want dear listener um, speaking from you know someone on the edge of those conversations what they want is if you're the history department and you're worried about humanities losing enrollment, you want to make certain that everyone is going to take at least one course of the U.S. history or the world history survey in which you can perhaps, uh, if you're me, unapologetically evangelize for students to become history majors. Uh, because if they don't take that class, you might not get up to a sufficient level of majors, and there might be some hungry looks cast your, towards your real estate by the provost. So that's what, and that, you know, I, I think that's what a general ed class is for lots of departments. Yeah, and what's fascinating to me about that is that the disciplines that struggle the most with their enrollments are the ones who buy in most heavily to this jockeying for the reason that you just suggested, when in fact, they're the ones least well served by this structure, mm. right? I mean, I say in the book that exploration is not the opposite of connection, right? The connection makes exploration more meaningful. And so if, if what you're doing is saying, look, we know we, you don't care about history. We know you don't care about literature. Um, but we're going to make you sit through an intro to whatever precisely for that reason, because you've told us these are things that you don't care about. <laughs> I, I think that's a hard thing for those history and literature professors to have to deal with. Yeah, but it's, that's why you have to send in your really your best your best team. But yeah, it's true. Okay, but, but but what if Gen Ed is organized around um, how different disciplines frame and pursue important questions? And so that science major who's thinking about how they ask questions in the sciences gets an opportunity to think about, well, how do people who study the humanities frame questions? What is what counts as data in the humanities? And and, you know, are they paying attention to big data? And if they are, what does it look like there? Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you're thinking on that level, then, you know, people who are teaching a whole range of courses in terms of content could be helping students make those sorts of connections. That to me feels much more meaningful than, you know, we're going to walk you through um, some material bounded by some probably pretty random time period um, in the hopes that it will spark joy at some moment and you'll get excited about what we do. Um, again, because you've told us that you're not. So rather than gen ed curricular pluralism moving towards some kind of integrative learning. Yeah, exactly right. So uh, in each chapter, it's very nice. You give a suggestion of what faculty can do, which is nice because it's especially nice for, uh, for those of us who are uh, learning sort of uh, have learned helplessness. Um, that you're you're giving us uh, the, these suggestions. So, uh, what's a small thing? You, you use a, a striking phrase: faculty to take responsibility for students' learning. 
which mm. almost made me bridle a little bit. I'm not supposed to take, I, I'm not supposed to take responsibility for their how, what, what, um, but how, <laughs> what can faculty do even when they feel disempowered, uh, dispossessed, uh, learn, learnedly helpless, what can they do to support integrative learning from where they are? Yeah, so uh, I'm so glad you you framed it that way because the the conversation perhaps I have most with faculty around teaching and learning really is this question of responsibility. And a lot of us will say, I did when mm. I started off my career. You know, I put the material out there. It's up to them whether they're going to yeah. learn it or yeah. not. Um, and that's a very common sentiment, I so, think. In, so in common. Yeah. Yeah. And. And, you know, I, I would never deny that students have obviously a role to play in how and how well they're educated. At the same time, what I think we need to do is meet learners where they are, which means not just putting out information or, again, content way back to the beginning of this conversation, right? And, you know, hopefully they've got the, you know, they're on the right frequency and they can pick up what we're putting out there. Instead, I think we need to learn who are these learners, what are their goals, what are their, you know, what are they trying to learn, and how can what I have to teach them um, sort of meet in the middle with what, with what they want to learn. So how can I offer an experience to them that will get them excited about this work, motivate them to learn more, build the kind of conceptual scaffolding they need in order to make sense of what they're learning. Integrative learning is really about connecting and synthesizing what you've already learned to what you're learning now and conditioning that learning for future learning, hmm. right? So it's moving across different contexts and being able to reflect on and build schemas for the different things that you're learning. So you framed the question just right, I think, when you said, what are some simple things? Because most of what we know about learning transfer, which is really what I'm describing and mm -hmm. sort of on steroids, right? I think about integration as transfer of learning that is intentional and multi-sighted, right? So you're thinking not just about how am I using prior knowledge in context B from context A, but you're thinking about how when I move from context A to B to C to D, am I bringing information, knowledge, and skills? with me um, and building as I go. That's how I think about integration. And there are very simple things that we can do to cue that kind of um, learning in students. Sometimes it's literally just trying to ask them the question, you know, have you seen this before? Mm -hmm. um, uh, have you... Right. I mean, again, very simple. Have you seen this idea or this or use the skill in your everyday life? Um, I do. I tend to be pretty explicit in my classrooms with my students in terms of goal setting. So I'll ask them at the beginning of a semester to set their own goals. I'll often ask them to do an inventory of what they already know about the topic of the class and what they would like to learn about the topic of the class and where it kind of fits into either their academic trajectory or if they're taking the class just to learn something um, that they don't already know because they're scratching an intellectual itch. That's something I want to know as well. And again, trying to find those places where my goals and their goals are meeting in the middle. Um, those are largely kind of 
you know, thinking forward from where you are, but pulling forward from where you've been. And then I really like to think at the end of classes, sometimes you could do this in the middle of a class too, um, about ways in which they are making sense of the material. So yeah, I have my own way of thinking about how the material of my course fits together, how the concepts fit together. But I like them to do concept maps as well, so that they're hmm. kind of making sense of um, for themselves of the different things that we've covered. Or I'll have them write a letter to a future teacher or an employer, um, sort of ref um, reflecting on the things that they've learned. That's nice. um, so again, looking back, thinking about the present and then pulling um, forward to the future as well. We're going, um, we're, we've, uh, we're going a little bit over, so I, I don't want to take too much of your time, but I do want to touch on uh, experiential and professional learning and how Certainly. they might be integrated. So you're now the, let me get it, get it right, the Vice Chancellor for Global Learning Opportunities, which I believe means that you're now responsible for study abroad programs. Um, yes. Study abroad programs are often very much the icing on the cake. Uh, they, mm. you, you go to Australia for you're not sure for any particular reason, but it's because other than it's sunny and they're really attractive people on the beach. Um, what can be done to actually and, and that and that is a very as an example of sort of an unbundled. It's some, just something that's tossed into the stew, and it doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. integrate with the rest of the dish. Um, how can uh, stay abroad programs be integrated with the rest of the college experience? Yeah, so you've put your finger on what I think is the central problem with the way we teach experiential learning, and that is that that these experiences are one-offs. Mm -hmm. They're not integ integrated into the student's learning trajectory. So even if they are great, maybe even life-changing experiences in their own rights, they be, they they're limited, right? And and their meaning and their consequence are limited if we can't connect them to other experiences that we're having. So, um, you know, I'm a big John Dewey guy, and John Dewey defines education as the continuous reconstruction of experience. This is his famous uh, definition in Democracy and Education. Um, in in education and um, and experience, he has two criteria, and I think these can these are really the answer to your question. Mm -hmm. Two criteria for evaluating the quality of an experience. Okay, so um, one of them is continuity, and the other is interaction. So continuity, uh, the ways in which experiences. This is what we were just talking about. The ways in which experiences are connected to and inform each other. Mm -hmm. So. An experience is educative to the extent that we can connect it to some other experience, he said. And then secondly, interaction. So that's engagement with physical and social environment. And so experiential learning for Dewey is by definition integrative, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that point gets lost when we think about experiential learning as just learning by doing or just going somewhere different and doing something. Again, that's a kind of a, a discrete experience. So Dewey helps us understand that good educators are expert shapers of learning environments. And those learning environments should promote continuity and interaction. Mm -hmm. So I really think as faculty and as kind of curriculum or program developers, if we're keeping these two principles in mind, I think we're going to do our students a lot of good. So 
uh, Northeastern is also a big co-op school, right? So um, that's a form of experiential learning in which students are doing six-month work experiences. We have built an entire curriculum around the co-op experience. It begins before they go on co-op and it basically asks them to, you know, inventory their skills, their goals. Some of the things actually I talked about doing in my academic classes, they also do on the co-op side. Then when they're out on co-op, they're they're engaged in reflections. Here we're building in mobile technology so that wherever they are, they're connected to each other and to their co-op advisor, their co-op coordinator, who's basically a kind of faculty member who helps them uh, uh, sort of reflect on their experience as they're having it. And then when they come back from their experience, we're asking them to debrief on their experiences, to reflect on what they learn, and then to start making some cha some choices moving forward, including their academic coursework based on that experience. So that we're really trying to integrate that experience. It's not just go build your professional network. It's not just build your resume, although it does those things too. Most importantly, it's about um, developing your learning trajectory and really thinking about who you are as a learner and making your decisions moving forward in that way. Same thing with study abroad. We really want our students to be mindful, intentional from the beginning. Why this experience, right? What could you do there that you couldn't do here in Boston? How could it allow you to um, uh, learn a new culture, learn a new language, develop a new skill set. Maybe there's a lab that they have and um, that, that we don't have here um, on Northeastern's campus. Maybe it would allow you to do something there and then you could bring that back um, and again, connect what you're learning in these different locations to what you're, um, what you're doing here in Boston. In Northeastern, we're really trying to think broadly about um, global learning across um, well, we have multiple campuses, first of all. We have several in the States. We also have one in London. Um, but also when you're doing what we call traditional study abroad, that too should be part of your uh, your ongoing learning experience. So it's not just you know go there and have a good time and take a few extra courses. Um, it's really try to go do something there that will become a meaningful and consequential part of your overall learning trajectory, um, mm -hmm. either you know as an undergraduate. So that's how we've been thinking about um, about you know both broadly how to think about experiential learning as integrative learning and then more specifically how study abroad or global learning fits into that picture. So the uh, what you said about the co-op experience in a way also discusses how to integrate professional learning uh, with, the rest, yes. with the rest of the curriculum. Um, so in both these cases, uh, both professional and uh, experiential learning, uh, again, what can a faculty member do in a simple way to start to encourage that integration? within their institution. Right. So I haven't talked very much about ways in which faculty can work together during this conversation, but most, you know, in all of the chapters, I'm really trying to think both about what can we be doing in our individual classrooms mm -hmm. and also what can we be doing together to support the kind of learning what, that I'm describing. What kind and of so, conspiracy on behalf of integrated learning can be launched? Those, that would be the best kind nice. of conspiracy. Nice. I like that. Yeah. Um, you know, so there are obviously some some obvious 
Well, there are some obvious things like co-teaching or, you know, building curriculum together. And I do think this is no small thing that we need to stop thinking about ourselves as independent owners and operators of our faculty brand and coming together and building curriculum together, doing the kind of curriculum mapping that shows where our courses fit into the larger student experience. I will use the A word and say that we do need to be involved in assessment as faculty members. And I really do think faculty members should be leading the assessment charge because they're other, the ones who other than have someone do it for you you might not like it yeah <laughs> i'm just saying that's the that's the cynical reason but if well unless assessment unless faculty lead on assessment they might find other people who the whom they're less enthusiastic about let's say doing the assessment I think that's true, but I also want to appeal to faculty members' sense that they really do want their students to learn, and they really are excited about what they teach and want other people to be excited about what they teach, and so we can learn a lot about how students are experiencing our classes through assessment. It's certainly true that there are lots and lots of bad forms of assessment that we want to avoid, but but you know that's part of what we want to be doing as well. Um, I really like very simple things like faculty getting together to do, you know, symposia or curricula uh, or, or sorry, or colloquia so that students are seeing them working together across their ex their areas of expertise, often across departments or maybe even across colleges um, and to see their minds in motion, yeah. right? So that students really understand that this is something that um, is happening across disciplines. And we do have these kind of dichotomies between STEM disciplines and liberal arts disciplines um, and professional disciplines that I just don't think are, are helpful. All students, as you mentioned earlier, need to be both sort of broadly and well um, educated and they need to be prepared for jobs. And for me, there's no competition. In fact, I think there's complementarity between what I call liberal learning and um, professional learning. That's not the same as STEM disciplines and liberal arts disciplines, because I think STEM disciplines and liberal arts disciplines and professional disciplines all have something to contribute to both liberal education or liberal learning and professional learning. We get caught up in these disciplinary divides. I think disciplinary divides, by the way, fundamentally are fine. It's when we start saying, you live on that planet and you live on that planet and students are going to have to shuttle between those two planets. And by the time they get to planet two, they don't really remember what they learned in planet one. And so it doesn't serve them um, well at all. And we need to work together across our disciplinary divides to make those research opportunities available to students, classroom opportunities together, co-teaching, for example, curricular opportunities. So we have something called combined majors here at Northeastern that are very exciting where we're, you know, English, for example, um, and history and, the, you know, I'm in the College of Social Sciences and Humanities, so I'm really working with those disciplines. Um, we also have criminal justice in our college combining with data science, for example, because we see that no matter what you're going into, you're going to need some basic level of, of data science knowledge and the ability to code, the ability to work with big data. And so this is partly, 
out of a sort of digital humanities mm-hmm. um, sort of focus within the college, but it's more broadly a recognition that the liberal arts need to be engaged with um, these other disciplines that are also kind of pervading uh, pervading life. I mean, it's not even just you know the professions; it's just pervading life. If we want to understand what's happening in our elections, we really need some basic data science knowledge. Mm-hmm. We need to know how statistics work. We need to know how algorithms work. I think really just to fundamentally, um, you know, understand the world around us. So these lines are getting blurred, right? Yeah. Um, we need to understand algorithms within their social and and cultural context. Um, we need to understand our society and culture through how we un- understand data. And technology so yeah. it goes both ways we need to understand what algorithms can and can't do uh, exactly. if, if they're going to be as important as, as they are as they seem to be um just exactly. uh just to finish up um just a, a blue sky conclusion um because mm. it's good to dream about higher education because we don't do that often enough um if you mm. were imagining a um it, it as i've been thinking about um the ways in which uh Universities, large universities, uh, in which it's very difficult to establish consensus about things, uh, which things are very unbundled. As I think about ways in which they could alter uh, their direction or experiment, it seems to me uh, establishing small colleges within their midst uh, to experiment uh, in many ways, like the Wisconsin uh, Lab School that was, or the Experimental College back in the 20s, uh, mm-hmm. att- attempted to do that. Um, if you were doing something called integral college, or something like that within a, a large university like Northeastern, uh, what would it look like briefly? Um, mm. as, I, as I read your book and just some of the things you were saying, I couldn't help but think of a conversation that we had back in, I think it was uh, dropped in May, with uh, David Staley, who's a historian at Ohio mm-hmm. State, and he, among his 12 crazy outside-the-box ideas for colleges, one was Polymath College, in which mm-hmm. e- everyone would have three majors, uh, in order to increase the not to be interdisciplinary, but to increase the connections made between disciplines uh, that are deeply understood, it would be very tiring, no doubt. Uh, there, would, uh, but there a lot of uh, maybe a lot of social campus social problems would also be reduced uh, by having three majors. What would be uh, what would be integral college look like? Yeah, so I listened to that conversation. It was a great conversation, um, and have picked up the book. Haven't quite read through it yet, but I do. I understand something about the polymath um, college or the polymath university. I think he yeah, calls I think it. He called it. What yeah. I love, yeah, what I love about it is that it asks. Um, students to choose across three domains. So the professions, the sciences and social sciences, and the arts and humanities, right? Which is a nice, that's a different way to carve the pie in some ways from the way that a lot of people do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would say as long as majors are internally coherent and integrated with each other, I'm on board. I don't think having three majors is necessarily integrative, right? So students need opportunities to think across those majors. Um, I think in Staley's model, the faculty possess competency in three domains, Mm -hmm. um, and they're sort of hired into that that college. And I'm I'm interested in that. It's very interesting. It's a very hard hard buy-in. It's a tough. That's fight. a hard point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't know how many of those folks honestly exist. I'd be. I'd be interested in exploring as well ways to make students the kind of nexus experts by creating opportunities for them to transfer knowledge and skills across th- those three mm-hmm. majors. They would need help in doing that, right? They would probably need some mentorship. Um, 
from their faculty and others, but I'm interested in thinking about what are they doing? Not that the faculty necessarily always have to be conversant in those three, mm-hmm. um, but that students might do that. There's always the possibility, you know, and there are some ways in which I think I trust students more than I trust faculty. Um, <laughs> and it's precisely because they are such experts that their their inclination may be to repackage interdisciplinary content and present it in, in traditional ways. Mm-hmm. Um Maybe not in Staley's model, but I think so. I think that's very interesting. I would love to see a university build a learning network that offers integrative experiential learning to learners across the globe, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, as we were talking about earlier, combining human and digital resources to really enter into a lifelong relationship with learners, guiding them on the journey we were talking about with those two Dewey and principles in mind of continuity and interaction. So the learner gets to dip in and dip out. We're starting to see people develop or universities develop subscription models. I think that's kind of an interesting way forward rather than just thinking of you get these you know, four years of tuition. Um, instead, you enter into a relationship mm-hmm. with this institution over time so that it serves you when it makes sense to you over the, you know, whether you're making a career pivot, whether you're, as I said earlier, scratching an intellectual itch, whether you're expanding your disciplinary or your professional network, um, learning opportunities are made available to you when you need them in accessible formats and in modalities that make sense. So, You know, for me, the key is to marshal the university's resources to serve that learner seamlessly across time and space. A little bit like I I think of it almost as a mix of the polymath uh, and the platform, Mm -hmm. Uh, except that what I, you know, the platform really does. The platform, as I understand it, is 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 uh, expertise agnostic almost. Right. It's a way of connecting Two people who have, you know, one who has a product and one who has the need to buy that product. For me, it's it's about putting uh, the educators and the learners onto a, a platform that they can use in kind of flexible ways over periods of time that serve the learner, not just the two years or the four years um, or the six years. My guest today has been Chris Gallagher. His most recent book is College Made Whole. Integrative Learning for a Divided World, available from Johns Hopkins University Press. Chris, thank you for so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rodat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.